Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bloomberg Tech Disruptors podcast. Uh, my name is Jennifer Bartashis. I'm the senior equity analyst who covers the retail staples and packaged food industries at Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, it isn't that often that we get to have a technology disruptor in the food space. So we are really excited to speak with Josh Tetrick, uh, who is the co-founder and CEO of Eat Just. So Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. For the listeners who aren't as familiar with your company, can you briefly describe for us kind of your mission and how you play a critical and disruptive role in the evolution of how people eat? We are trying to move people away from all the billions of animals that we need to slaughter every single year and all the land and water and carbon emissions that we need to use as a part of that process to something better. And we do two things. One is we make a product called Just Egg, which is a, an egg that comes from a plant, a bean called the mung bean. And we're in about 2 million households from Walmart to Whole Foods to ShopRite. And then the second thing we do is we make real meat. This is not plant-based meat, but real meat without the need to slaughter an animal through a product called Good Meat. Uh, and today we're the only company in the world that's actually selling this kind of meat. We do it in Singapore. We just got FDA approval to sell in the United States. So we hope to be selling here pretty soon. But our company, our mission, our technology is about making these common forms of animal protein, eggs and chicken and beef and pork, making them better, making them in a way that we can continue eating them and also have a planet at the, at the same time. So we definitely love the, the fact that there's a sustainability and an environmental focus to all of this. And yet you're leveraging technology to really unlock the capabilities. I'd like to kind of start with the, the, the good meat part of your business. And let's, let's just start with the terminology. Um, some people call this cultivated meat. Some call it cell-based meat. Others call it lab-grown meat. What is the preferred lingo? And can you describe for us kind of what that product actually is? Well, our favorite lingo is meat, but that'll be, that'll be in the future. We'll just call it meat. Um, so what all those terms from lab grown to culture, to cultivated, to cell based, uh, uh, others, all they're trying to say is that it is real animal meat without the need to slaughter an animal. So you start with a cell and then you identify nutrients for the cell to consume. So think about what an animal would eat, soy and corn, and what makes up soy and corn, amino acids and sugars and salts. So we identify those components. We call it the feed. Um, we ensure that it works with the cell that we, we have. And then we actually manufacture meat in a stainless steel vessel in an environment that it's enabling the cell to grow. That's where we manufacture it. And then after a few weeks, we remove it from the vessel and we actually have real meat. So from a cell to the feed, to the vessel, to the chicken on your plate. It's a way of making real chicken and beef and pork without the need to have all of these tens of billions of animals. And that technology was really developed within the biopharmaceutical space for the past decades. And what we're doing is biopharma for food and then ultimately at a much larger scale. Um, I, you know, I've heard you talk in the past, you know, some of the, the challenges are really about unlocking that scale. Um, so can, can you talk about, you know, what are, what are the biggest hurdles right now to unlock production at scale for cultivated meat? And then longer term, you know, how, you know, how do we then start to, to move the needle um, and introduce this to the population at large? So today we, we sell in Singapore. It's a very small volume. Um, and we're at a butcher shop called Hoover's. And we've sold through partnerships with Food Panda. We've sold at local street vendors. 
um, high-end restaurants, um, but our capacity is very limited. So we're selling, but but small. And when we launch in the United States with Jose Andres, it'll be the same thing. Uh, one or two restaurants, very small volume to get to real scale. And in our mind, real scale is tens of millions of pounds. You need to move from making it in vessels that are a thousand to 6,000 liters to vessels that are a hundred to 200,000 liters. And that requires a lot of design and engineering work. It requires a lot of capital investment. So big challenges on the investment side, challenges on the technical, the engineering side. And there are really three levers to drive costs out to get to that scale. One is the big vessel. Mm-hmm. Two is driving down the cost of the feed, also called media. And then three is driving up what's called cell density. So it's just how much you can make in a given period of time. And we see a path, not an easy one at all, but we see a path before the end of the decade to be below the cost of chicken, beef, and pork at scale. Again, scale defined as tens of millions of pounds produced in a given year. Um, And that's what the team, uh, however challenging, that's what the team is pushing on. Well, that's wonderful. Um, And it's it's fascinating that We've seen a lot of governments um, start to show a lot more interest in these um, cultivated proteins. And so, you know, you mentioned that you're in Singapore. I know you've had a couple of other announcements about other areas of the world that you're 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 engaging with. You know, what's driving the interest from the from the governmental side? And is there anything that's needed to help accelerate growth uh, from that perspective? More than anything, uh, food security. So Singapore imports about 90 plus percent of its meat. And when you're so reliant on your neighbors, like Malaysia and Singapore to import all your chicken, most of your chicken, that does leave you vulnerable in case of a supply disruption, Mm -hmm. uh, in case of some global economic shock, uh, in case uh, leadership in a country decides it no longer wants to export to you anymore. So building a resilient food system that's not so reliant on others is a really big deal. And Singapore is a, is a good example of that. They have an initiative called 30 by 30, where they want to get 30% of their food produced domestically by 2030. And there are other places in the world like Saudi Arabia, like Qatar, in the United States too, that its governments are seeing that making meat in this way um, is really important to building a food system that is much more durable, right? Can last. Um, and probably even more than climate change, that that seems to be accelerating things on a governmental level. Interesting. And, and I, I would imagine that getting a little bit away from the government level, but on that food security topic, that you know, there's because of the way the product is created and you're talking about sort of um, you know, lab type space or industrial type space, that there's an, a real opportunity to bring the creation and the manufacturing of food much more to local communities and that that also then has a, an impact just on on cost of the like the supply chain of getting items from point a to point b and and you think of how expensive it is right now for um, the animal husbandry industry to raise animals move animals slaughter animals move the you know move the end products get them out to stores is is that part of your long-term vision as well about being able to be very local to communities that are served yeah, that's much more long term, but that's definitely an advantage, you know, in the in the decades ahead of of doing this. You know, as I think about, you know, the next decade, it's continuing to sell in Singapore, it's selling in the United States, it's getting regulatory approval in China and Europe and a couple countries in the Middle Eastern regions. It's 
selling tens of thousands and then millions of pounds. But then longer term, yeah, I think being able to produce locally and some of the inherent supply chain advantages uh, of this are really important. The Really the original inefficiency of how we make meat today is that you need the live animal. Because if you need a live animal, let's just talk about a cow or a chicken. If you're going to feed billions of people, well, then you need tens of billions of them. And if you need tens of billions of them, they have to eat, which means they need hundreds of billions of food, pounds of food. And if you need all that food, the way you have to grow it somewhere. And then often where you grow it is a rainforest that you chop down and then you plant the soy and corn to feed them. And it's, but it kind of goes back to, if you need the animal, you need so many, and then you need all this land and all the water. And it goes on from there. And through this approach, even though it's in the very early days, the idea is you can get away from that and, and just make as much meat as you want without all those, without all those issues. And so uh, part of the, you know, part of the, the cost equation that you talked about was the higher capacity, but it's also the cost of the feed. You know, what, when, when you look out over the next 10 years, do you, do you see the cost of that coming down? Just because when you were talking just now about, you know, the cost of, you know, soybeans or corn or whatever, I imagine at some point we'll be talking about the cost of feed um, used for cultivated meat in much a similar way of, you know, you know, is that price continuing to come down? Are there better formulations or cheaper formulations that can be used? What do you see in terms of that opportunity in the next, you know, the next 10 years? Yeah, to bring the cost of cultivated meat feed down, Yeah, you need to buy a lot more of it. So we don't mm -hmm. buy a lot of it today because we're not making a whole lot. So you've got to buy more of it and you need to drive down the individual cost of the components. So Let's say you're using two kinds of amino acids and two vitamins. Well, you've got to drive that cost down. And that's through negotiating with suppliers as a part of larger purchasing. And it's not different than the economics or the, the principles aren't that much different than if you're talking to a soy and corn supplier. The more you buy, the longer they can rely on that contract. Typically, the lower the price is going to be. Yep. So economies of scale really is, is the real answer there. That's, yeah, that's the biggest driver. And ultimately, to get feed costs, for cultivated meat where they need to be, they need to be in the, the 10 to 20, 30 cents range per liter. And we're way above that today, but economies of scale driving out components that we don't need, it's really necessary to make, uh, to make that the one of three cost drivers happen. Now your, your company, um, had big news, um, uh, mid-March that you cleared one of the, the, the major hurdles, um, with the FDA in terms of progress of being able to sell, uh, cultivated meat in the United States. Um, but there's still a um, a USDA component uh, of approval to that as well. Can you just very briefly give us like a, a sense of what that what that process is? I mean, it, it seems like the the like the kind of the major hurdle is gone by, um, and that you're you're getting very close to when you'll be able to make it commercially available in the United States. Yeah. So to sell in Singapore, we need approval from one regulatory body. The S it's called SFA, the Singapore Food Authority. So we got approval and then we started to sell. Mm -hmm. The U.S. cultivated meat is regulated by the FDA and by the USDA. So we've moved through the FDA process. That was a two-year-long process where we submitted information about how we got the cell, how we feed the cell, how we develop the cell line, how we manufacture the cell. Uh, now that we've gotten approval, and that whole process is on the FDA's website now, our submission, uh, we work with the USDA, and the USDA is focused on the facility inspection. So it's really everything that happens after 
the vessel. And we're working with the agency right now to ensure facilities inspected properly, that the label is as they would feel good about. Like most regulators, they don't give us a timeline, but we're uh, going to be ready to launch with Jose Andres in one of his restaurants in D.C. as soon as we get the go-ahead from them. That's a, a, absolutely amazing and and incredibly exciting. And, you know, I can't wait to be in line to try it. <laughs> but I also want to make sure that we talk about the other half of your business, um, because it, you've also had sort of some extraordinary circumstances in the past year. When you were talking about your company, you talked about the fact that you also have the Just Egg business, um, which is a plant-based alternative to eggs. But, you know, we've seen a tremendous um, spike in egg prices. We've seen shortages at retail. And that creates kind of an interesting backdrop for for your plant-based business. So can you just talk to us a little bit about uh, what you've seen in the last, you know, the last year or so um, and how your business has been able to respond and what that's meant for you? Well, one of the the biggest issues with the way that we currently produce animals, not just eggs, is that you end up seeing lots of zoonotic diseases like an avian flu. Um, and when avian flu hits, prices go up. Uh, when prices go up, often there can be shortages and there can be an opportunity for another product to come in and be introduced to consumers. And that's what happened with us. We were able to for a period of time, um, add an additional 200,000 or so households. Wow. Uh, for a period of time, we were at or below the price of chicken eggs. And it just helped build awareness, right? For people that didn't know about us. Many people tried us for the first time and now are still buying it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, the fundamentals of egg production, where you need tens of billions of chickens, eating them all the soy and corn, That's what we think is the issue, right? And that system eventually breaks down. Um, It collapses in and on itself. And we think something, there's a different approach that you ultimately can make a lower cost egg, a healthier egg, a better tasting egg through a more efficient process of removing a protein from a plant. Um, And when you have issues like avian flu, it gives you an opportunity to talk about that more. Right. Um, And and I want to kind of touch on on something you just said in that there really seems to be um, a perception um, among consumers that that some plant-based products don't have as healthy a profile as conventional products. So there's a perception that they're over-processed or over-manufactured somehow um, or highly processed foods. Um, you know, how do you respond to that? And, 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 and is it different when you're talking about an, an egg product versus um, people thinking about, you know, a plant-based meat or burger product? Well, I think first, whether you're talking about egg or plant-based burgers, you have to think about what do you mean when you're talking about health and what are you comparing? What are you comparing it to? So like in the case of uh, a plant-based product versus a conventional, you're comparing that plant-based burger, let's say, to a conventional burger. You're not comparing it to a sweet potato. Right. (laughs) And I I, I would say the sweet potato probably would win out over both the conventional burger and the plant-based burger. But, you know, you're, you're looking at what is the saturated fat. You're looking at what um, the ratio of polyunsaturated fat to saturated fat is. Um, you're looking at what the cholesterol is. You're looking, is it increasing or decreasing one's risk of cardiovascular disease? And for decades, the research is pretty clear, saturated fat and then, and then cholesterol increase one's risk of cardiovascular disease. And most plant-based products, not all, most plant-based products, are better when it comes to that. And just speaking for us, um, we have significantly less saturated fat. We don't contain any cholesterol. 
so from, you know, from that point, we have right about the same amount of protein. So from that point of view, uh, we would say it is, it is healthier. Now, just saying it's healthier though, is not saying, you know, it's a kale salad. It's going to be hard to beat the kale salad, but, uh, but luckily you can have both. I think one of the interesting parts about your, your, your business, um, is that you're, you're pretty well diversified, um, on the egg side. And can you just talk a little bit about your decision to, to balance, um, retail sales, which, you know, I tend to think of as the container of just egg in the grocery store and B2B strategies, um, because it, it seems like that, that kind of helps balance out the, the, the business and, you know, supply and demand and that sort of thing. Well, um, we should be more balanced today. Most of our sales are on the retail side. So Walmart, Whole Foods, ShopRite, Publix, pretty much all major retailers in the United States. Uh, food service is a smaller percentage of our business. We're in Caribou, we're in Pete's. Um, we just did a, a small launch with Dunkin' Donuts in Korea, about 20 stores. We're going to be launching with a 500 store um, opportunity here in the next month. And the industrial component, so in our mind, this idea of selling Just Egg for others to use in their own products is a growing one for us, but it's still relatively small. Uh, but ultimately, we want that to be very significant, right? There are big bakery companies that are using eggs, big emulsified dressings companies that are using eggs for mayos and sauces and dressings. Um, there are all sorts of companies that are using different versions of an egg in their finished product, and we want to sell ultimately to them too. But right now, retail is a driving force, food service is next, and we want to we want to build out this industrial part. Excellent. And, it, it, you know, eggs is really a, an interesting place to play because not only do people eat a lot of eggs, but as you said, that people use eggs in a multitude of products. So it seems like the opportunity there is really is as big as you have the resources to apply against it. Yeah, of the 2 trillion eggs that were laid last year, roughly a third of them are used as ingredients in bakery, in sauces and pastas and all sorts of different applications. So yeah, ensuring that our egg that's made from a plant is highly functional and can meet the demands of many of these applications is really important. Um, and, and you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that, that this, this product is, is largely based on the mung bean. Um, and we, you know, we've seen supply chain issues in the last couple of years. It seemed to be kind of evening out, but from, from your perspective, you know, it, you know, has the supply chain, have supply chain issues kind of eased? Are you feeling pretty good about where things are? Or are there still some challenges that are persisting? There are definitely challenges. We don't see many on the sourcing in the mung bean front. The supply chain challenges we see are mostly related to domestic logistics, um, but they're better today than they were, you know, six, eight, 12 months ago. So they don't seem to be creating the, all the, all the chaos that they were a year or so ago. All right. Now at Bloomberg Intelligence, you know, we, we have a, an annual forecast that we, we put out and we revise every year about the opportunity in the plant-based space. And we remain really optimistic about the long-term growth and penetration, you know, potential for, for the industry. But in the last, you know, the last year or two, we've seen some sales sort of softening and we've seen a lot of players in the plant-based space laying off, you know, parts of their staff or having to optimize manufacturing operations. Um, and so I guess my, my last question for you is against kind of that, that current backdrop, you know, how optimistic are you about this industry and why? Well, I look at making meat and eggs in a different way as 
being necessary and obvious long-term. Now, that doesn't mean that in a given month or a given year, everything is going to go well. But it does mean that we've got to, as a society, figure out a way to make these products better for consumers, tasting better, healthier, lower cost, emotionally feel better for consumers. And the principles that are underlying the traditional way of making eggs and beef and chicken and pork, I just don't think makes sense on the planet that we have. And I think more and more consumers are realizing that. Um, so you might have a month or a quarter or a year where things are down, but longer term, I think the trends are clearly in the direction of, we got to have a different approach. In the same way with electric cars, um, maybe next year you'll have slower growth in electric cars, but moving forward, we're transitioning to electric. Um, and I think it's, it's the same thing from moving from this live animal-based system of production to something that is better. Now, whether that is a plant-based, whether that is cultivating meat, whether it's a combination of them, I think that's where things are headed. I love that analogy because, you know, at, at one point everybody thought electric cars was, you know, kind of either elitist or a joke. And now we're seeing the the preponderance of and the spread of, of that technology. And I truly look forward to the day when uh, we see that same sort of acceptance and, um, you know, people embracing um, the, the evolution and the complete change in our food system um, that seems to be on the horizon and is something that is really necessary. Josh, this has been an incredible uh, a, a conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and just wish you uh, the best of luck going forward. Thank you. Good to be with you.